You're listening to a resource from Alpine Bible Church. Alpine Bible Church exists to know Christ Jesus together and to make Him known. We are located in Sugar Creek, Ohio. For more information, visit our website at alpinebible.org. May Jesus be glorified in your life. Bibles to Deuteronomy 5 if you're not there yet. Read our passage for this morning and then we'll pray. In the second week of a series through the uh, Ten Commandments titled Such a Heart as This, wonder may wonder where that comes from. The end of the chapter, God talks about, oh, that my people would always have such a heart as this always to love me and to follow my commandments. And so, That's the theme, that's our intent. We're dealing with the second and third commandments this morning. I'm going to start at verse 6, and we'll read down through verse 11. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is on the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. For the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, we've sung it, but may it be our prayer that we would give you our hearts and our lives, our minds, our attitudes, our hopes, our dreams. May we give them back to you, and may you now speak, because when you speak, it's how you reveal yourself, it's how you reveal your character, your nature, you reveal to us what is really good and truly right and righteous and holy and good for us. So I pray, Lord, that you would speak, speak to your people this morning. May we leave changed because we've heard from you today. We ask your Spirit's help, and in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As I said last week, this is the second time that the Ten Commandments are recorded as being given and explained to the people in the Old Testament. The first time is in Exodus. This is 40 years later, while Moses is essentially gathering the next generation together and walking them through basically a sermon that is grounded in the Ten Commandments, and then he expounds on many things that have to do with the Ten Commandments and laws that flow out of the Ten Commandments after that, all the way through chapter 26. And with the new generation comes new people, new uh, people that need to 
uh, appropriate this law for themselves, take it in for themselves. It doesn't matter necessarily what mom and dad did with it. We, it's, we're responsible now to hear f- from what the Lord has said, and now we're responsible to love him and to follow his commandments. But these are a people who, 40 years prior, their fathers, their, the generation before them, were taken out of, as the Lord said, taken out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, in which the people existed for 400 years. And at the beginning of Exodus, you see that the Lord says, I have heard the cries of my people. And so we can at least assume that the people at some point were crying out to the Lord, were complaining to him, were calling out to him for help. It's amazing that for 400 years, something existed in terms of faithfulness and remembering God in the midst of Egypt and bondage and slavery. We know of another 400 years of seeming silence and uh, where's God kind of thing in in between our Old and New Testaments, sometimes called the intertestamental period. For 400 years, there's no prophets, it's quiet, it's silent, it seems, from the Lord. But God answers that 400 years of silence with deliverance and salvation, bringing and sending his son to bring deliverance and salvation to his people. The same thing that happened after 400 years of bondage and slavery and seeming silence from the Lord, God brings deliverance and salvation, bringing his people out of Egypt, out of bondage, out of the house of slavery. Jesus displays that all uh, that had become thwarted and misunderstood, as he taught in the Sermon on the Mount, things had, uh, things had begun to be misunderstood, misapplied, uh, forgotten in some ways. And so as Jesus preaches the Sermon on the Mount, there as he comes into his ministry, he is reminding people, it seems that people have forgotten, forgotten what is true, forgotten who God is, forgotten what it is that it means to serve the Lord. And in some ways, we can understand how quickly um, the, the Israelites, in a similar way, had, yes, they, they were given uh, this amazing deliverance out of bondage, this amazing deliverance out of slavery, and yet, <laughs> how soon did it take for them to begin worshiping the golden calf even after they had been delivered? But in some ways, a people steeped for 400 years in a culture that's entirely antagonistic against the proper worship of God and loaded with false worship of all kinds of gods, with no seeming deliverance or no word from God, it would seem. What kind of toll would that take on a group of people? And yet, all that God did in delivering the people in Egypt uh, out of Egypt, all that God did in showing His power in that deliverance, was not, it seemed, enough to keep them from quickly forgetting who God was and how they were to serve Him and how they were to worship Him. And they were quickly led into idolatry and blasphemy. But even those around Jesus, the disciples, they sat with Him, they ate with Him, they were taught by Him, and yet all of them scattered, all of them uh, left Him. And Peter, we could just follow the story of Peter. He's a great example of this. How much he messes up, how much he forgets. Something else, it seems, needed to have happened to the people, both after Egypt and both in the disciples' time when Jesus had been there. Something else had to happen 
at a deeper heart level so that they would understand who God is and that they might be helped in how they worship the Lord. Forgetfulness is a terrible thing. Some of you get frustrated when you forget things. Um, And maybe that has grown to become more of a thing for you. I notice that I already am retelling stories all the time. Um, And I remember sitting with my great-grandma, and she would tell me the same stories every time I saw her. And it was like it was the very first time she had ever told me the story. And so I listened, and it was, it was fine. But some of you may feel that frustration of you can't remember something. And forgetfulness often leads us to missing something, not understanding something, frustration, as I've already said. But forgetfulness is dangerous in our spiritual lives. Forgetting who God is, forgetting how we are to worship Him, Forgetting what he's done, forgetting how powerful he is, forgetting how faithful he is. We can so easily become pulled away by our emotions, by our circumstances, by our uh, lives, things that happen to us. And yet God brings deliverance and he brings them the law. And it's as if God is calling for them to delight in what he delights in to desire what he desires. That's what he is revealing here in these Ten Commandments and in all of the law. He's revealing his nature. He's revealing his character. He's revealing who he is. And in many ways he's saying, Israel, delight in what I delight in. Desire what I desire. And you and I know how difficult that is. We don't, on our own, have the wherewithal to be able to do that, to to be able to delight in that which the Lord delights in, to desire that which the Lord desires. We need help, do we not? We need more than just seeing it, because we see it and how quickly we turn away and can forget. We need something helping us to do that. I talked last week on how the Holy Spirit being given to us does the very things that the Lord called the Israelites to do here with the law through Moses. He said here, remember in verse 1 of chapter 5, hear the law, learn it, and do it. And the Holy Spirit uh, graciously given to us helps us do all of those things. Nevertheless, we still wrestle with forgetfulness. We've talked about verse 7, the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. This is a clear command from the Lord. We live in a culture that is very consumer-driven. Everything is about what can get your attention and make you want to buy any particular product or experience. And that's fine and good for various aspects of our life, but not with God, because God is not making a sales pitch here. This is a command. You shall have no other gods before me. He's not asking you to consider that. He's telling you that. And we don't like to be told things. I had some customer service training in a previous job I had, and they talk about how we shouldn't tell people things. We should... And, and we had to do this dumb little exercise where uh, every time you had to explain something on a card, uh, the other team had cards that said telling. And every time you were telling someone something, they would hold up the telling card. Don't tell me that, right? And the best way to maneuver through a phone call with a consumer is to don't tell them something, 
make them think it's their idea and lead them through and, and just kind of waft them through the call until you send them some coupons and then you're done. And because the nature of it is, we don't like to be told things. Don't tell me that. Don't tell me what to do. We're Americans. Right? But that doesn't work before a holy and righteous God. You shall have no other gods before me. And in many ways, the second commandment is tagged on to this, and you'll see a, an outflow of each commandment building on one another and being interconnected here. You shall not make for yourself a carved image of any or any likeness of anything. And he's making sure that he covers every possible potential carved image that is in heaven above, that is on the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. Now, if it stopped there, we would say, well, he's just saying that we can't be artists. That's not what he's saying. The issue is not every guy that has turned the tree that fell down into a statue of an eagle with their chainsaw. The issue is not that those guys are in trouble. Which I don't know how they do that, by the way, but um, they do. You've seen these, perhaps. Maybe you have one. That's not the issue here. The issue is not art. The issue is not that you have images of things, that you represent things through some sense of artistic whatever. The issue is in verse 9. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. Now you might say, boy, I don't feel any temptation. Well, I'm good with the second commandment. I don't feel any temptation whatsoever to make a statue of a frog or a cow or a bird and worship it. So I don't even need the Lord's help to do that. But let's investigate this for a moment. At the base level of this commandment, it's not only concerned with whom to worship, because verse, uh, the first commandment dealt with that, shall have no other gods before me, before Yahweh, he is the only one to worship. It's, so this second commandment is not only about whom should we worship, but the manner of doing so. This is an image specifically meant to represent God. I need something tangible to look at, to think about, to focus my attention on, and so I need an image, something that represents him so I can focus on that because it's so hard to want to worship someone that's not there, it seems, or at least that I cannot see. And so we put things there. We are not so much tempted to make some kind of statue or whatever else, but we're tempted to put a lot of things in a place before God that we tell ourselves, I am putting this here so that I can worship God, whatever that is. Sometimes it's, it's our families. The way in which I focus on my family and my spouse and my children and the way in which I pay attention to that, and the way in which I invest a lot of time and care and concern and whatever else in my children and what they're doing, whatever else. This is how I'm honoring God, is what maybe we tell ourselves. But in fact, if we're, if we're really careful to maybe diagnose ourselves, we might be putting something there that we're actually breaking the second commandment in doing so. 
putting something. We want to we image God. Well, God values the family. God says, I need to value my wife and my children. I need to raise them up, train them. I need to shepherd them. And I need to get them in the sense in which they're underneath God's word in a healthy church. So I need to, we can justify this. And we can then put them in a place that they shouldn't be. You might have wonderful children, but they make terrible gods. Could be your career, your aspirations, your success, your abilities. Your status. Everybody knows me. And God had, and, and, and we always can weave ourselves through and say that God somehow has, has, has set this up. You see, this is so closely connected to the first commandment because anything that we try to say is something that represents God for us and starts to receive our worship is our clear breaking of this second commandment. He says, image or likeness anywhere, right? In the heaven above, on the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. So that pretty much means anything, anything that is put in the place of God. Even if we're trying to tell ourselves that this is some kind of means through which we worship God. If it's a pastor, if it's a speaker, a leader, an author, a song, uh, anything, we're breaking this commandment. He says, Hi, the Lord your God, verse 9, I'm a jealous God. I remember hearing from Oprah that this is what caused her to doubt God. How could God be jealous? Oprah's not more spiritual or moral than God is. So God can be jealous and still be righteous. It tells something about the relationship that God wants with his people. It's exclusive. He doesn't want you to be, and we're going to get to this when we talk about adultery, but the, the spiritual nature of, of the relationship that we are to have with God is very closely connected to a marriage. And he doesn't want anybody else in the picture. You're not talking to anyone else. You're not including anyone else. You're not chatting with anyone else on the side. It's just me. And you're not even putting anything, any images in the place of me. This is very tangible and very practical for us. It's not about statues and everything else. It's about whatever it is that we're putting in front of us and we're saying that this somehow in whatever way is God. We might not say that this is my God, but everything from the outside, of, as, you're looking, as someone is looking into your life, they can say that's, that's his God. It's clear. He says, I'm a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. The point is, grandpa, great-grandpa hates God. So does grandpa. So does dad. So does son. I have four generations of my family alive right now in various parts of my family. The point is, in your current state, God will deal with, because most oftentimes, this kind of behavior and this kind of attitude and this kind of position towards God will be passed down through generations. You multiply yourself within your family. And it's only God's grace that he comes in and plucks one of those generations out of there and begins to turn the ship. Many of you are examples of that. But his point is, 
visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. Notice he says, those who hate me. False worship is telling God that you hate him. Idolatry, that's what this is, is telling God that you hate him. It's not just, I'm getting it wrong, I need to adjust this. You're telling God that you hate him. And everyone who practices idolatry, which is everyone who sins, in some fashion or another, is basically telling God that they hate him. And he says he visits the iniquity on down to the third and fourth generations. There is a sense in which there is consequences uh, to this kind of behavior that falls outside of just yourself. You are reaping what you sow, and so is the next generation, and so is the next generation, and so is the next generation. But, verse 10, showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Steadfast love. Mercy. This is God's particular faithful love that he shows, that only God can show. He shows this steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Remember Jesus said in John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. So there's a close connection between, you can't just say, well, I'm loving God a lot right now, but I'm not keeping his commandments. Jesus connects it and says, there is no separating the two. If you love him, you will keep his commandments. Obedience and love are closely connected with God. It's clear, I would think, I hope to you, how we might break this commandment. How easily we can slip into idolatry. And even we can take good things and make them God things. We can take, as I said, family, marriage, careers, everything else. Ministry can become images through which we attempt to worship and wrongly worship God. It's very easy for us to break. But the cross has dealt with this, hasn't it? I don't have time for you to flip to all these, so let me just walk through them. Romans 5, 6, familiar verse. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. That's, what the un, that's who we were before Christ, the ungodly. God-haters. Through our actions, through our very nature. Romans 1.18 tells us, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. That is the essence of idolatry, suppressing the truth. I don't want to represent, I don't want to worship God as he truly is, as he really is. I hate him. I hate what he says. I hate what he stands for. This is what the ungodly would say. And the essence of unrighteousness and ungodliness is that you're suppressing the truth, you're committing idolatry, but for while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. He died for people that hate him. That's the world, right? John's gospel talks about that. What an amazing thing. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11 a familiar passage. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, 
nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Idolaters won't inherit the kingdom. If you persist in idolatry, you will not inherit the kingdom. Paul's statement, such were, such were some of you. You and I, in some form or fashion, were idolaters. But we were washed, sanctified, justified. How? In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. See, Jesus kept this commandment. And he helps us keep it. At, uh, sitting with the woman at the well in John chapter 4, he says to her at one point that true worship is to happen in what? In spirit and in truth. And in John 14, in verse 17, he talks about giving the Holy Spirit, and he calls it the spirit of truth, that leads us into all truth. Jesus did not practice idolatry. Jesus did not bow down to Satan as he, Satan attempted to try to give him quickly in Matthew chapter 4 what he would receive, and he was already his. Jesus says, you shall not shall worship the Lord your God alone. But this sense of worship in spirit and in truth that he talks about and giving the spirit of truth that guides us into all truth and helps us to understand how we are to rightly worship the Lord, how we are to rightly worship him as he truly is, comes by the spirit. Romans 8, verses 12 through 17, talks about, uh, for all who are led by the spirit of God are sons of God, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. That same spirit that helps us to cry out to God as our Father, we've talked about that a lot this morning already, that same spirit that helps us to cry out to God as our Father, helps us to understand who God truly is so that we might worship Him rightly in spirit and truth. And so when we call him our father, we know who he is, we know what his name is, we know what his character is like, we know how we are to worship him because the spirit is inside of us crying out to him, Abba, Father. He bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And children know their parents. Children know their father. Children know how they are to respond to their father. He goes on, the third commandment here. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. For the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. What's his name? What's God's name? Yahweh, Jehovah. And it's there for us. Capital L-O-R-D. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. What's that mean? Oftentimes we read this and say, well, we shouldn't swear and use his name, right? That's obvious. But it's not just that. It's not just that. It's not as if you say, well, um, 
I never, I never cussed in that way and used the Lord's name in vain, so I'm good. There's something about his name. You may know that hymn. There's just something about that name. It's more than just, I don't use his name when I get mad. What's he say? He will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Leviticus 24 verse 15 says this. Speak to the people of Israel saying, Whoever curses his God shall bear his sin. God takes it seriously about the misuse of his name. And his name, as he reveals it to Moses, is what? Who should I tell them that sent me? When they ask what your name is, what should I say? Exodus 3. Tell them I am who I am sent you. This nods to a sense of who God is, right? He's self-existent. I am. He just is. He's self-existent. There's, there's a power. There's a might. There's a holiness. There's a righteousness. There is a, 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 a otherness from us that is represented in the name of God that is not for us. We have names just so I know who you are. It's a sound and a word that tells me you're Joe, you're Bob, you're Sue, whatever. Right? It means nothing. I think Nick, I think, means sunshine. Has nothing to do <laughs> with me at all. My parents didn't name me Nick because they reminded, I reminded them of sunshine. But God's different. His name is connected with his character, with who he is, with what he's done, with his promises. And even in the Bible, we're going through a story of uh, Abraham on Wednesday nights. Even God's naming of Abraham has to do with his promise to him. So that every time someone says Abraham, he remembers that God promised to make him a father of a multitude of nations. We don't necessarily have names like that. But God's name is packed with meaning. And so when we take the name of our, the Lord our God in vain, it's far more than just swearing. It's far more than oaths and cursing. It's a cheapening of the name of our God. Anytime that happens, we've taken it in vain. We've, asset, we've essentially said, he is not as important as he claims to be. He's just common words. He's just another item on the shelf. Every time that we demean the name of God in some way or shape or form, by how we act, by what we say, by what we believe, by the way in which we treat the, the very name of God, we're showing that we're taking it in vain and it's not important. But the cross pays for this. Paul in 1 Timothy 1, he was a blasphemer, wasn't he? I thank him, he says, who has given me strength, starting in verse 12, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, an insolent opponent, but I received mercy. Because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. Paul was a blasphemer. You and I were blasphemers. We took the name of the Lord 
in vain all the time. You might even say, well, I never swore and used that name. It doesn't matter. You cheapened his name. You cheapened who he is. You cheapened the very essence of what he is, who he is, who he says he is in his name. Jesus upholds the importance of the name of God. His own name is important. Jesus' name. He says at one point in John chapter 8 that before Abraham was, I am, connecting himself to who God is, connecting himself to the Godhead. But the Spirit helps us in this way. How, how, do, we, how do we not do this? Let's think about the commandments. We should not live in fear of these commandments. These are for our good. We should not quiver that, are we going to break the commandment? These are for our good. They're leading us to something. And the Spirit given to us helps us. Galatians five sixteen through 24, it's too long for me to read, but it talks about the fruit of the Spirit, and you know them. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. All of these things are given to us as fruit from the Spirit inside of us, bringing about these things, making us more and more like Christ, so that we do not ever want to cheapen the name of the Lord. We want to hold Him up as who He is, as how important He is. Remember Isaiah 6? Isaiah is standing before the Lord, and he says in verse 5, Woe is me, for I am lost. What's he say? For I am, he doesn't say I'm a terrible sinner. He doesn't say I've done awful things. What's he say? I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. You know what's interesting about Isaiah and Paul? Both of those men, Paul says he was a blasphemer. Isaiah says he was a man of unclean lips. And God takes a blasphemer and a man of unclean lips, sanctifies them, and sends them out to speak. That is the, that is the wonderful irony of our God. That he takes ridiculous people who say ridiculous things, turns them upside down, and then uses them for his glory. That's what he does with Paul. That's what he did with Isaiah. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. There's three things I want to highlight for us as we come to a close. The first is this, God's identity. We live in a... In a, in a Society, culture, whatever, that's obsessed with identity and, quite frankly, is very confused about identity. But I don't want to talk about your and I's identity today. I want to talk about God's identity because God's identity is how we understand who we are. He's creator. He has made us. He gives us, if you will, identity. And if we're not looking to him for a sense of what our identity is, then we're lost. God's identity. And this is shown for us in the second commandment. He's, in, he's concerned about his identity. Just here in our text in Deuteronomy 5 and verse 6. I am the Lord your God. Said I've, We talked about this last week, but just think about that for a minute. Why does he say that? Because you might say, well, of course you are. We know. We get it. But why is he so concerned about saying who he is? It's not as if God's just really formal. And he's always, hi, I'm the Lord your God. Hi, I'm the Lord your God. That's, that's not what's happening here. He's concerned that people understand who he is because that redefines everything. If you don't understand who I am, you don't understand anything. 
I already mentioned Exodus 3, verses 13 and 14, when Moses said, um, Who shall I say? He already knows that God is the God of his fathers, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God says that. But who should I say? You are. I am who I am. This nods to, as I said already, God's self-existence. Theologians call this God's aseity, A-S-E-I-T-Y. He simply exists. Nothing else simply exists. Everything else has a beginning. Everything else has somebody that made it. Everything else has some start. God has none of those things. He simply exists. Our minds can't even wrap our heads. We can't even understand what in the world that means, really. But he just is. In Acts 17, Paul is walking through Athens, and then he begins to speak to them, and he talks about you know, the, the, uh, uh, the way in which they're worshiping. There's the altar to the unknown God, and, and, and we laugh at that. It seems so strange. And Paul says, who you worship as unknown, I'm coming and bringing to you as known, as declared. He is to be known. He wants to be known. The very fact, folks, that we come together and talk about God shows something about his mercy because he has decided to reveal himself to us. He had owed us none of that. He, owed, he didn't owe us his word, his revelation of who he is. He didn't owe us that we might know him. But he's so merciful and so gracious, even while he's so powerful and mighty and holy and righteous, he has decided to make himself known so that we know him. And in the graciousness of the Lord working through Paul, a former blasphemer who didn't really understand the God that he thought he served at all, he comes into Athens and says, let me tell you something that's the best thing I can tell you. You guys are all messing around with stuff you don't even know. I know him, and he wants you to know him as well. And that's why we, we, we miss the importance of God's identity and declaring who he is to the people around us. Throughout the Bible, there's a lot of talk about the image of God. In the early chapters of Genesis, we find out, particularly in Genesis 1.26, that God makes man in his own image. Same word used here in Deuteronomy, you shall not make for yourself a carved image. But then we don't really hear anything else about the image of God really after the first few chapters of Genesis for quite some time. Because all we hear about is idolatry, because everybody messes it up. They want to try to make their own image. They want to try to make their own God. They want to understand God how they want to. You know, in the 12-step program, it talks about God as I understand him. That is the worst possible advice you could ever give somebody. You don't need to understand God as you understand him. You need to understand God as he understands himself. Not putting that, all of that is down, but that is just bad advice. God demands to be understood as he is, not as we would understand him. And so idolatry is rampant after the first few chapters of Genesis, all throughout Scripture, all throughout the Old Testament. Everybody's getting it wrong at one end or another. The prophets are coming as, uh, and, and telling them, you guys are missing uh, this, and, and I, that's a light way of saying it. And they're off base when it comes to the law. But then, at the incarnation of Christ, when he comes... The New Testament begins to unfold this reemergence of imaging, reemergence of talking about the image of God. And in Colossians 3, Paul says something that's showing what God is doing 
in the grand scheme of things. Colossians 3, he just is talking about putting off the old self and putting on the new self. And he says in Colossians 3, verse 10, And have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of, of its creator. God is concerned. That's what God is doing in Jesus. He is reforming the image of God in us. Because it was marred. It was lost through sin. It's messed up. It's still there, but it's not as it should be. And isn't it interesting that God's the only one who gets to make something in the image of himself. God's the only one who gets to make something in the image of himself. There was no need for anyone to make an image that represented God because God had already done that when he created human beings. He had made human beings in the image of God. Not to be worshipped, But God decides, this is the only thing that I'm making in the image of me. And yet, the essence of idolatry is that we try to make something in the image of God to represent him, to be him. And we don't do that because we're not God. So anything we're going to make in that way is going to be wrong. So God's identity, he's very concerned about his identity. That's why he's talking about, you shall not make something that tries to represent me. And so we have to be very careful and and think about in our lives, think about in our thoughts, in our worship, even as we come in right ways and as we attempt to worship in right ways, we need to be very careful about what is the things that we're actually doing in worship? What's happening as we worship? What's all of our emotions about? What what are we responding? We need to kind of really dig into ourselves and not just, as even as Joel alluded to, not just kind of go through the motions because... We need to make sure that we're worshiping God in truth. Who he is, how he demands to be worshipped. So God's identity. The second is idolatry. I've talked a lot about idolatry. I love this passage in Isaiah. Isaiah 41. God is talking to idols here. And it's sort of in jest that the Lord is having a conversation with idols. Because you can assume where it's going to go. Isaiah 41 and verse 21. He says, Set forth your case, says the Lord. Bring your proofs, says the king of Jacob. Let them bring them and tell us what is to happen. Tell us the former things, what they are, that we may consider them, that we may know their outcome or declare to us the things to come. Tell us what is to come hereafter, that we may know about you, that you are gods. Do good or do harm, that we may be dismayed and terrified. Here it is. Behold, you are nothing, and your work is less than nothing. An abomination is he who chooses you. Then down to verse 29. Behold, they are all a delusion. Their works are nothing. Their metal images are empty wind. God, that's what God has to say about idolatry, and particularly idols, and particularly anything that we tempt to put in his place. Idolatry is rooted in forgetfulness. Think about the golden calf. Moses is taking a long time. We need something to worship. Aaron, get that going for us. Let's worship a cow. (laughs) Again, we, we, we read that and we think, what a ridiculous thing. But what they're doing is just taking in the gods and the representation of gods from other cultures. And they're saying, yeah, we've forgotten about everything that just happened. Coming out of Egypt, let's 
Let's worship something. We need something tangible. Idolatry is rooted in forgetfulness. It's also rooted in this original sin of Adam, trying to be God. As I said, only God can create humans in his image that are to worship him alone. When humans try to create something in God's image, it fails. Only God can do that. When we try to make idols or when we put things in the place of God as idols, we end up becoming like what we have created. Because you become like what you worship. This is what is supposed to happen. When you worship the Lord, you're supposed to become more like him. That's good. But when you worship something other than the Lord, you become like it. Psalm 115, verses 4 through 8. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell. They have hands but do not feel, feet but do not walk. And they do not make a sound in their throat. Those, here it is, those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. This is why you ever wonder why people caught up in sin seem so lifeless, seem so empty. You might even remember that for yourself before you knew Christ. When you're just down in sin, you felt empty, you felt nothing, you felt so fragile, so lifeless. Why? Because you became like your God. You became like your God as you worshipped it. Because it's not anything, it's not God, it's lifeless, fragile, empty. Idolatry displays the truth that we are in danger of being led astray by our own desires. We all have desires. We all have the things that we want to do, want to uh, take part in, see, look at, think, achieve, whatever. And the problem is, when we go after our desires without any nod to the Lord, without any remembrance of the Lord, we run off into idolatry. And the second commandment graciously protects us as image bearers of our Creator. It's given for our protection. Don't destroy the image. Don't mar the image of me in you. I'm remaking that through my son. Don't destroy the image that I'm remaking in you. It's protection for us. Remember I said in Deuteronomy 5 there, the Lord says, I have delivered you out of the house of slavery. The law is not slavery. It's meant for your good. It's to keep you from going where you should not go. And even better, I have enabled you and helped you to do that. Lastly, uh, so first is God's identity, second idolatry, the last is the importance of God's name. In a sense, God and his name are nearly synonymous realities. In other words, God's name is more, like I said, than just a sound that determines who he is and, uh, and, and what we're to call him. No, rather his name describes his own significance. Jesus associates himself, as I said in John chapter 8, with, uh, with Yahweh, with I am. He says, before Abraham was, I am. But in Psalm 9, or excuse me, Psalm 8, we get a taste of how we're to think about the name of the Lord. Psalm 8, verse 9, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You might sing that. You know, we sing songs about the greatness of the name and the beauty of the name and the power of the name and so on. You might have wondered sometimes, I don't get it. But the name of God is so important to him. It would be wonderful for you to take some time and do a study of just, you can flip open your concordance and walk through every time you see something mentioned about the name of God and show, see how important God thinks his name is. 
Affirming the importance of the name of God is affirming and upholding God's own importance and his glory and his holiness and his character. Remember what they're commanded, what Mary and Joseph are commanded to name Jesus. We shall call his name Jesus. He will save his people from their sins. Jesus' name literally has packed into it what he is going to do and what he is sent for. I wonder if you know this morning that God saves. Packed into that. You talk about who is Jesus. Do you know Jesus? Do you know when you ask somebody if you know Jesus, you're literally asking them, do you know that God saves? Because packed into his very name is the essence of who he is and what he's done. And so his name is so important. His name packs in for us who he is, what he has done, and how gracious and merciful the Lord is that he desires that you would be saved, that you would know him, that you would trust in him, and that you would worship him rightly. Because all of that is for your greatest good. All the things that you can try to run after and achieve and ascribe for yourself is meaningless. You will not find joy and peace and contentment and happiness outside of God. In God, you will find all of that, but that's just the beginning of it. We're not trying to sell you on joy, contentment, peace, as though this is a timeshare meeting. This is about your eternal state. This is about your existence now. This is about the way in which you would live your life for something that is far outside of what you're living your life for now. And all of that is packed into God's very name, who he is. That we might, that we might understand that and take hold of that with God's help. Let's pray. Father, we recognize that we do come to you in the name of Jesus Christ acknowledging that you are a God who saves. For many of us this morning, even thinking about that, we acknowledge that you have saved us. We've sung about that already. You've brought us to yourself. We've heard some testimonies this morning about how you've done that. And we rejoice in the fact that you are a God who saves. For some here this morning, Lord, though, I, I, I think that there's some that might need to know that. I pray that they would hear that you are a God who saves. That we're not all just here, Lord, to feel better and go home and get on about whatever else we were doing. But that this is an opportunity for the God of the universe, the creator of all things, to reach out into someone's life and heart and introduce himself to them and say, I am a God who saves. Trust me. Follow me. I pray for someone here this morning that might be wrestling with that, that they would hear that and believe. God, this week may we live with this clear sense of who you are, your importance, your majesty, your glory. May we worship you as you deserve with your Spirit's help. We ask all of this in Jesus' name.